SWS Growth Equity Strategy Update for Q2 2023. This is Mike Parker, Lead Portfolio Manager for SWS Growth Equity, our flagship long-only growth strategy benchmarked against the Russell 1000 Growth Index. Given our increased usage of audio content within our investment process, it seemed appropriate to offer an audio version of our quarterly. As always, your feedback is incredibly helpful and very much welcomed. We structure our piece into two parts, the first being our take on the current environment, along with our plans to execute through it. I'll kick off this discussion before handing it over to Kurt Grove, who will walk through part two, which includes a performance deep dive and issuer-specific takeaways from our portfolio. Our written piece contains a number of URLs, charts, and tables. Please refer to a PDF copy to access these supporting data. For the second quarter of 2023, SWS growth equity returned 12.50% net and 12.73% gross of fees compared to the 12.81% total return of the Russell 1000 growth index, our strategy's stated benchmark. The S&P 500 returned 8.74% over the same period. Further context to returns can be found later in our reports. Although it's not our practice to speculate on market directionality and the magnitude of short-term moves via portfolio positioning, this prior quarter reinforced an important tenet to long-only investing. Despite a dearth of compelling all-clear macroeconomic signals, we now sit at the mid-year crossroads staring at a first half that appears to have taken a healthy dose of optimism. Our read on the bottom-up efforts that aggregate into these outcomes tells us something different is afoot. It's also less about being along for another NASDAQ 100-fueled volatility ride, where our latest upswing acts as a precursor to mean reversion via downward adjustment. Triangulating the data points to draw these conclusions takes work and increasingly relies on pulling from disparate areas of expertise. These are the exact conditions in which our process thrives, and one we feel highly likely to be rewarded in our attempt to exploit pricing discrepancies in the quarters and years to come. We see the fundamental reveals in 2023 as largely providing hints to the correct go-forward approach to underwriting public equity issuers. Last year's hysteria, especially among issuers outside mega slash large caps, for example, 40% of the Russell 3000's constituents experience a greater than 50% drawdown in 2022. It took zero effort to discern companies that would pass this modified underwriting formula versus those that would massively fail its criteria. It all hinges on the speed required to implement discount rate modifications and the follow-on balance sheet stress test effects, exercises that would have had their own chapter in our 2022 Lessons Learned Manual. Coming off the mat of near zero rates, it was clear that our underwriting needed to incorporate higher base rates on top of which to assign equity risk premiums. That said, the brunt of the price correction we endured incurred, occurred in the initial move from 0% to 2% Fed funds target rate 
uh, versus the ride from 2% to 5%. The former period left more questions unanswered regarding the length of the Fed's uh, battle against elevated asset prices. Per usual, policy responses massively delayed relative to the market's ability to reprice risk. The macro watching camps calling for CPI to hit double digits in percentage year-over-year terms far outnumbered those predicting a reversion back to low single digits. Despite imperfect information on how all this would pan out, it signaled the need to scrub balance sheet intensity in our underwriting while heavily scrutinizing cash burn rates. Our final analysis concluded the hurdle rate bar indeed had been raised, but we still were able to identify avenues where deploying equity capital could achieve returns that exceeded this higher cost of capital environment. With this being the kernel of economic value creation, one that the public markets customarily rewarded with equity price appreciation, we believe the current 2023 market response provides hints of where value creation is unfolding. None of this is to say everything rewarded year to date is deserving of a permanent higher repricing. Observing how quickly the uh, hype floodgates have opened on all things AI and LLMs definitely causes our skepticism barometer to spike. Not to mention, observing nearly every management team proclaiming to be making bets in something AI related suggests that not all of them will be as transformative as hoped. However, layering another quarter of new information onto our analysis reinforces some of the building blocks we identified years back are uh, likely to prove critical in the sortation exercise of discerning hype from true opportunity. For example, tracking Amazon's dedicated machine learning tools within its Amazon Web Services platform reveals how important the data set that fuels the accuracy of any large language model is. It all hinges on how, number one, large, two, diverse, and three, clean, the data are. And we see it less necessary to discern how gatekeepers of the tools will monetize them, and far more compelling to identify how and where AI tools are likely to disrupt. Tesla's now former senior director of AI, Andre Karpathy, who left to return to OpenAI, where he was a founding member, espoused these factors as being critical to building car manufacturers' autonomous software stacks. It also reinforces the data advantage Tesla has in its fleet that's increasing now at a 1.9 million vehicle per year run rate with aspirations of growing production 50% plus for the foreseeable future. Any competitors hoping to feed their training models with their own vehicle sensor data have to build a fleet, retrieve data from this fleet, and feed them into a model that must prove to be meaningfully safer than the average human driver. Edge cases are exactly what stand in the way of reaching the level four slash five holy land And although we're far from reaching this destination, one current market participant has an orders of magnitude data advantage. And just a quick Tesla side note, given we believe much of this goodness is reflected in its near $1 trillion market cap, we don't currently own the stock. We prefer uh, to attempt upside capture elsewhere in the value chain where price levels are far more discounted.
Following the AI heard around the world uh, via ChatGPT's release earlier this year, AI has firmly moved from the R&D skunk works bench to full-fledged ROI generating seeking <laughs> generation seeking capital deployment. Specifically with ChatGPT, its meteoric rise in user count is an indication of AI's urgency-fueled uptake. The application surged past 100 million users in its first two months of general release. In comparison, TikTok took nine months to achieve the same milestone, while Netflix hit it over two and a half years. Interestingly, this two-month record wouldn't be held long, as Meta Platform's Threads application recently achieved its respective 100 million user milestone in five days. Now, a Twitter-killing app is a slight apples-to-orange comparison here, but it also stems from the efforts of a public issuer with massively misunderstood contributions to AI and ML ecosystems. Meta's calendar 2023 stock price reaction also falls into the aforementioned category of one discarded to the waste bin last year. What initially was perceived and subsequently punished as exorbitant capex spend to fund its founders infatuation with building a metaverse has abruptly flipped the script. In addition to building tools to assist advertisers with ad spend ROI measurements in a post ATT and IDFA world, Meta has steadily been pu publishing uh, machine learning tools to seed the network effects of its current and future platforms. Its latest release of Llama 2 provides hints at its unfair data advantage. With its architecture built on two trillion pre-trained tokens that outperforms many other open source models on reasoning, coding, proficiency, and knowledge tests. This past quarter also highlights how ripe active return opportunities can be, especially at this particular market juncture. Meta also provides a good example of sentiment shifts as a uh, causal dynamic, but poorly forecasted fundamental prospects are another culprit to price having deviated from value. Consensus forecasts spent the entirety of last year steadily reducing the 2024 outlooks for Meta's earnings overly punishing their models for elevated spend and languishing revenues. What ended last year as a $10 EPS scenario for 2024 has been modified uh, more than 50% upwards this year, where the street now sees $15 a share is more likely. Netflix has also undergone a similar re-rate on sentiment and earnings, where last year's concerns hinged on there being pretty much no new content to watch, and that North American subscribers were plateauing. This year, the company has started to demonstrate how meaningful an ad-supported model can be for Netflix while simultaneously cracking down on password borrowing. The examples don't end up at these two issuers, but they highlight how lucrative stock picking can be in large cap growth, an asset class deemed quote-unquote efficient and as such, allocated to via passive exposure by many. The 37 names that populate our portfolio represent what we believe to be the strongest risk-adjusted constituency to outflank the broader market. Despite not owning what we view as sources of froth, 
that continue to prop up overall market results, we've remained on solid footing thus far in 2023. The market's top heaviness has been persistent for far longer than we prefer, and our measurement of its impact showed further skewing in Q2. The S&P 500's top seven constituents accounted for 116% of the index year-to-date return through June, with the mega caps of Apple, Microsoft, Nvidia, and Tesla accounting for 84% of this return on a cap-weighted basis. We prefer exposures elsewhere to these issuers and as such have 0% exposure to them currently. And valuation-wise, our portfolio is on very different footing than prior years, uh, periods of elevated expectations. Today, our portfolio sits cheaper than our bogey on a price-to-sales basis when we adjust for the one uh, pre-revenue issuer that we own uh, with our portfolio at 6.5 times forward sales versus the index at 7.5 times forward sales. Now, back during periods of 2021, we ran slightly ahead of our bogey on this metric. And our current portfolio constituency is also forecasted uh, to deliver 66% free cash flow growth in 2024 versus 2023 when utilizing a weighted average uh, positive free cash flow issuer analysis. In comparison to our benchmark's 19% expected growth rate, for which our 39.0 times price to free cash flow multiple appropriately reflects in comparison to the Russell 1000 growths, 36.6 times price to free cash flow multiple. Surpassing our five-year inception milestone during this prior quarter, we reflect upon the backdrop through which our portfolio has taken its public pricing marks. With live capital backing our outcomes over the prior five-year period, it's reassuring to see reinforcement of our principal belief disproportionate value creation will likely accrue to public issuers exploiting advantages via data. Since this trend tends to occur at far greater frequency in growth proxies relative to value, the blended quote-unquote core outcomes that many define as the market will steadily require a growth-minded skill set in order to decipher mispricings. Now AI is just one example but many more suggest that ROI potential exists among those capable of investing billions of dollars. This backdrop, in combination with a precarious valuation skew towards the largest issuers, sets the stage for ripe active return opportunities among large cap growth for years to come. Part two, our reason for existence. Alpha delivery. The U.S. equity markets delivered strong returns in the second quarter of 2023. Markets were led by the media dubbed Magnificent Seven, consisting of Apple, Microsoft, Nvidia, Amazon, Meta, Tesla, and Alphabet. These seven securities' average quarterly return was 27%, contributing over 67% of the S&P 500's 8.7% return for the quarter. Size was the main determinant factor of performance this quarter, specifically on the growth side, with a Russell Top 200 growth returning a positive 14.4% versus the Russell 2000's positive 5.2%. Growth outperformed value across the market cap spectrum, specifically at the small and mid-cap levels, 
The Russell 2800 growth indices returned a positive 7.1% and 6.2% respectively versus their value counterparts at 32 and 3.9%. SWS growth equity tallied another strong quarter, returning a positive 12.5% net and 12.7% gross of fees in the quarter, bringing the total return year to date to 30.3% net and 30.8% gross. The performance for the quarter was in line with the stated benchmark. The Russell 1000 growth at 12.8%, invested the broader market S&P 500 at 8.7%. As portfolio managers, we're pleased with a strong performance to start the year and excited about our future underwriting. As mentioned earlier, the bifurcation and valuation between the top 10 issuers and the S&P 500 is at a historical extreme, and we don't think prospects over the next couple of years warrant this valuation difference. The market views these stocks as quote-unquote safety stocks, due to the perceived liquidity and lack of underperformance in 2022, contributing to positive momentum. However, we anticipate that the primary factors influencing future market performance will originate from sources beyond these mega caps. SWS growth equity contains a few of these mega caps that aren't at historical valuation extremes, but also have many other constituents at historically low valuations with upcoming catalysts in the next 12 months that we expect the market to come to appreciate. Please see attached tables for additional performance details. Part three, contributors and detractors. Contributor number one, Garden Health. Garden had a strong bounce back quarter after appearing as a detractor in the first quarter, returning a positive 52.7% versus its biotech peers at 5%. We'll be lighter on details this quarter after we wrote extensively on our liquid bio exposure between Garden and Natera last quarter and hit heavily on Garden specifically in our 4Q report. Please see attached links for further detail. As we stated last quarter, the wide range of outcomes around an FDA ruling on Garden Shield's efficacy for preventive colorectal screening would increase the volatility in the stock as investors analyze every incremental update and comment from Garden, regulators, and key opinion leaders. This quarter, we received the Eclipse Study update, breaking out the respective staging of cancers detected by the study. While investors and industry experts will debate whether the 55% sensitivity inside of stage one and 83% overall for stages one through four colorectal cancer is significant enough for mass adoption. We look heavily at the adherence rates of approximately 90% of a liquid biopsy versus colonoscopies at 30%. Additionally, we highlight that 76% of colorectal cancer deaths are derived from the 49 million non-compliant Americans defined as not up to date with the recommended screening practices. We recognize that a liquid biopsy is a patient's preferred taste testing methodology combined with an obvious unmet need and clearing of minimum standards set by the FDA. And we view it highly likely that the FDA approves Garden Shield products for colorectal usage with CMS coverage to follow. Contributor number two, PureCycle Technologies. It's been an expansive journey since our original 2021 purchase of PureCycle. The company has come a long way from its original feedstock evaluation unit prototype, scaling up and completing the first high volume plant of its kind in late June 2023, a fully circular recycling plant for polypropylene, otherwise known as PP5, representing an, ad representing an allocation in our material sector. PureCycle provided significant alpha in the quarter, outperforming by posting 52.7% return versus its material peers at 6.2% for the quarter. PureCycle is, is a unique position inside of our growth equity portfolio. 
As a former pre-revenue SPAC that turned over its entire upper management team before producing a fully recycled pellet, PureCycle represented a significant portion of our quote-unquote speculative risk budget for the portfolio. This allocation of risk is important though, representing the largest opportunity for outperformance. But this opportunity for upside is not mindlessly deployed as a position. It is carefully considered from an individual issuer perspective and relative to the rest of the portfolio. When considering portfolio construction, every position matters to the overall risk-adjusted returns. PureCycle skews to the high end of the risk budget for the portfolio, but not every position offers this upside optionality of PureCycle. Our initial thesis centered around the demand for recycled polypropylene increasing and that consumers would be willing to pay a significant premium relative to virgin polypropylene. With a total addressable market of approximately 200 billion pounds of polypropylene produced yearly and only approximately 1% presently recycled due to its unique chemical makeup, polypropylene differs dramatically from other plastics recycling rate of approximately 25 to 30%. This demand backdrop has only improved as our initial underwriting contemplated 50 to 75 cents in EBITDA per pound of polypropylene produced by PureCycle, with new contract negotiations by the company for their Augusta offtake contemplating over $2 per pound of recycled polypropylene. Representing the only technologically available solution for circular recycling of polypropylene while being patent protected and backstopped by the legal prowess of Procter & Gamble, PureCycle also scores high on our management quality assessment with its bench of reputable veteran executives who hail from established industry participants like Lionel Bissell and Chevron. PureCycle is the right company to develop the nascent recycled polypropylene market and concurrently occupies a large segment of our speculative risk budget. The upside from a potential successful build-out of the currently planned 10-plus plant lines at 130 million pounds per plant, monetizing at just a dollar of EBITDA per pound, is obvious to us as equity holders. Still, our confidence in prospective execution was not gained overnight. We have met with the management team of PureCycle numerous times, been on site at Ironton, the site of the first plant, on three separate occasions, and have done countless hours of independent research. While our, unique, or our original position in May of 2021 was ambitious and early, the follow-up due diligence and share price volatility has provided us ample opportunities to add to our position at a cost-weighted basis below $9, most recently purchasing in March 2023 at $5.20. Contributor number three, Marvell. As a security, Marvell represents a portion of our semiconductor exposure alongside of Umbrella, Intel, and Applied Materials offsetting the larger index positions of NVIDIA, Avago, and Qualcomm. Marvell had strong quarter, returning a positive 38.2%, besting its semiconductor peers, which returned a positive 31.4%. We last wrote about Marvell as a contributor in 4Q 2021, and we find it helpful to look at our ex-ante predictions and compare them to the ex-post results and how these translate to present events. We focus on the Cloud Silicon semi-custom ASIC opportunity in the 2024 to 2026 timeframe, with approximately $800 million of revenue capture opportunity that Marvell could achieve. We noted that every new semiconductor and iteration starts with general purpose compute and progresses towards ASIC, depending on the volume of units needed and the value of the compute. Does this sound like it would matter today? The newest semiconductor boom is being brought about by AI and the rise of LLMs like ChatGPT. While NVIDIA is stealing the spotlight from every other player in the industry as it is the main beneficiary in 2023, 
with his H100 GPU used to train these models approaching $100,000 per unit. We don't think this will always remain the case. We expect other players who could help the cloud providers develop large training models via their semi-custom compute chips at a significantly lower price to show up soon. In the recent quarter, Marvell gave several hints about how much it may benefit from this AI investment. The original $800 million provided in 2021 from exclusively cloud-optimized silicon has increased significantly above the estimated $800 million, with volume production ramping next year. Marvell, via its InFi acquisition, also benefits from the networking of the data center, which historically refreshes every four years. However, due to the 10x bandwidth requirements of AI models versus current models, the refresh rate is now needed every 18 to 24 months. Putting these positive AI tailwinds all on the table and evaluating how to position within semiconductors, we prefer Marvell at 15 times price to gross profit and a company that we expect to be able to continue to expand operating margins towards 35% from today's 26% versus, say, an NVIDIA at 35 times price to gross profit and with operating margins approaching 60%, which we expect to be lower in the future as customers inevitably push back against NVIDIA after the initial panic buying from AI subsides. Detractor number one, Etsy. Etsy, an online e-commerce storefront, represents a position inside of our consumer discretionary sector allocation. Etsy's most direct peers in the retailers or personal goods subsectors were a drag on the overall market this quarter, underperforming the index by returning a negative 1.1%, and Etsy underperformed much further at negative 24%. It's difficult to point at something Etsy-specific to diagnose the underperformance in this quarter. We chalk it up to mainly general U.S. consumer weakness, tough comparisons due to the lapping of seller price increases from last year, and concerns over student debt repayment limiting the U.S. consumer. We see these near-term issues and understand them, and we have held off on incremental share purchases, but think they are only near-term hiccups. We still strongly believe in the platform that Etsy is building and CEO Josh Silverman's vision. With a platform commanding 90 million plus buyers at an annual average customer spend of $144 and a merchant take rate of only 20.7%, Etsy is just scratching the surface of the addressable merchandise sales opportunity. We also expect further flexing on the take rate. Etsy's opportunity centers on solving two core problems with its business, being top of mind for prospective customers and curation. Top of mind is an issue for Etsy because while it commands 90 plus percent brand recognition and people are generally happy with their Etsy experiences, only 11% of consumers think of Etsy when going to purchase a general gift. Increasing the frequency of existing customers utilizing Etsy will be important. On the curation side, Etsy has, seen market, has made marketed improvements utilizing AI, even before it was cool, through its Xbox and Neural LLM to filter customer requests into a concise list of recommended products. Detractor number two. Sienna. Sienna is a small offset to our decision to not own Apple inside the hardware subsector within technology. We'll be brief in our details on position or rationale as we heavily expounded upon Sienna last quarter with its position initiation. Our initial thesis that the telecom industry's supply constraints combined with pandemic-induced demand growth bolstering Sienna's backlog to $4 billion would hold in better than prior cycles has largely played out so far, with the backlog dropping just below $4 billion last quarter. Fundamental strength, unfortunately, did not help the stock this quarter, with CNM returning a negative 19.1% versus its hardware peers at a positive 22.2%. Instead of any material deterioration in financial expectations for CNM, concerns over service provider slowdowns hit the stock. 
We view this as a one to two quarter phenomenon because service providers networks are already running near full capacity and have been under investing in their networks since the pandemic began. Additionally, there's been a positive development on the political front for Siena with the passage of the $42.5 billion broadband infrastructure plan, where Siena will be a material beneficiary in the build-out of rural broadband access. Not to be left out of the AI boom, we expect Siena to be a marginal beneficiary of the expansion in network capacity as data centers move to a more north-south network topology as AI proliferates into the inference phase from training in the back act of, of a decade. Detractor number three, MP materials. We last updated our thoughts on MP when we initiated a position in 2Q 2022. The former SPAC operating a once defunct mining operation was salvaged from bankruptcy for $20.5 million in 2017 by MP's founder and largest shareholder, James Litinsky, a former hedge fund manager. Fast forward to 2023, MP materials is producing approximately 43,000 metric tons of rare earth oxides and ramping stage two of its Mountain Pass project, where it'll be refining REO and NDPR, neodymium, presidium, the two key rare earth inputs into permanent magnets. While MP continues to progress nicely in its quest to bring a vertical solution for magnet production in the United States, it is still heavily exposed to the commodity price for REO in its stage one business. The decline in the underlying commodity hit MP this quarter returning a negative 18.8% versus its basic materials peers at 6.2% quarterly return. Owning a commodity-producing company is sometimes viewed as sacrilegious among our U.S. large-cap growth peers, but we view the secular backdrop for MP to be just as attractive as any AI, software, or other more typical quote-unquote growth investments. This quarter, we made it on site in Las Vegas to visit with MP's management team and came away more convinced in their strategy of reshoring the U.S. rare earth industry building a vertically integrated magnet producer while heavily focusing on risk-adjusted ROIC for shareholders. Balancing risk slash reward is a tough task for MP as they are building out the first magnet facility in the U.S. in decades and management is being prudent with the phase one build out of stage three, the magnet facility, backstopped with a guaranteed offtake and ROIC agreement with General Motors. We think investors are missing the investment thesis with MP. There are multiple ways to win. First, the underlying secular demand for rare earth elements from electric vehicles alone easily outpaces any possible available supply. Simple Econ 101 dictates the probabilistic scenario of demand being greater than supply, resulting in higher prices for rare earths. Plus, approximately 85% of the rare earth supply is currently available exclusively through China. With a recent onshoring effort by the U.S. government to diversify away from China, MP is one of the only companies to see its cost of capital fall even with interest rates rising. Growth equity position Intel might be the other. Stage two, the refining stage, is ramping to full production and should result in an approximate doubling of EBITDA. At a normalized price for NDPR, the stock is trading at sub five times earnings. Second, we're not sure mining specific investors have seen a company transition from a mining specific issuer to a miner, a refiner, and then fully vertical industrial company with magnet production all while being the sole producer of said commodities in the Western Hemisphere. It would be surprising to see MP execute and the stock multiple to stay at this level. Part four, portfolio changes. We had one new position this quarter, Intel. We added to existing positions in Umbrella, Pinterest, Cloudflare, Match, PayPal, MP Materials, and Twilio. We reduced our positions in Meta, Arista, American Homes, 
Linux, Netflix, Shopify, and Visteon. Our newest position is Intel. Intel is the newest position within the growth equity portfolio, serving alongside the aforementioned Marvell and Umbrella and Applied Materials as the semiconductor exposure for the portfolio as an offset to the index positions of NVIDIA, Avago, and Qualcomm. While serving as an offset at purely the subsector grouping level, Intel also provides an offset factor exposure as a material underperformer over the past five years, underperforming the Russell 1000 growth index by negative 68%, and its semiconductor peers via the SOX index by negative by 78%. This underperformance over the last five years has been earned by Intel. Intel plays on both sides of the semiconductor market as a semiconductor fab producer competing against TSMC and Samsung, and as a semiconductor designer competing against NVIDIA, AMD, Qualcomm, and etc. Being the only industry participant offering a completely vertical approach from chip design to fabrication was a huge competitive advantage for decades for Intel. It was the reason for its number one position in both markets. Unfortunately for Intel, Clayton Christensen had it right with the innovator's dilemma, and Intel was disrupted on both sides of the market at the exact same time. These smaller, more nimble competitors were able to design better, more niche chips like NVIDIA with a GPU that started small and would eventually garner a significant amount of incremental industry dollars. And at the same time, the smaller fabrication factories were more willing to build these niche chips that mighty Intel, who could solely rely on its own chips for its fabs, would not. As time passed, these once niche chip designers and fabrication facilities would soon rival Intel's ability to design and produce semiconductors, all at a significantly better combined industry margins. Fast forward to two years ago, and the wheels of innovation at Intel started to spin with the return of former CTO and key chip architect Paul Gelsinger as its CEO. Over the past few years, Intel has been right-sizing its capital structure by cutting the dividend, monetizing some of its investments, and most importantly, focusing on returning to technology leadership within the fabrication business. Initiating a position in a company while banking on a change in technology leadership for the stock to work is a tough proposition. Looking at today's setup and the present margin of safety, we don't think that's necessary. The timing of our entry is important context. We expect a cyclical upcycle for earnings revisions at a decade-low valuation on trough earnings because of the pull-in and subsequent echo from the PC cycle. These facts alone set up an attractive return for the stock. Also, similarly to the previously mentioned MP, Intel is arguably one of the most important companies geopolitically to the United States and Europe, eligible for a significant portion of the recent is recently issued $123 billion in tax subsidies. This backstop and lowering its cost of capital is vital as it continues on its ambitious quote-unquote five nodes and four-year strategy. This important backdrop gives us as investors the ability to win in the near term and provides time for us to probability weight the likelihood of Intel returning to node leadership in their fabrication business. Other investors put this at almost a 0% chance over the next five years. Upcoming technology insertion points at 2 and 3 nanometer with GAA and BSPDN, otherwise known as gate all around and backside power delivery networks, will be just as challenging as incorporating EUV was at 7 nanometers. Coincidentally, this is where Intel lost its process node leadership, and these technological hurdles serve as potential jump ball opportunities for Intel to catch TSMC and Samsung quicker than investors might expect. Thank you.